We want to continue to worship by just coming together as the people of God to pray with one another. And at the start of this year, we uh, talked a lot in, in our New Year's Day service uh, about how we want to be a people that follow God. We want to follow Him personally. We want to follow Him in community. We want to follow Him on mission. That's a part of who we are as His people. Uh, and if that's a kind of new language to you, if those are new ideas to you, then I invite you to stay with us and learn what that means. Because we are on a journey of, what it, of learning what it means to follow Jesus in our own lives, together in community, and on mission. And so each week we want to come before the Lord and pray uh, together as His people for some of these different things in these different areas. Uh, and before I do that today, what I wanted to do is just read a scripture from the Gospel of Matthew that links really well with uh, what Eric was just saying. And I just want to take some time and think about this area of following Jesus personally, what it means to follow Jesus in our own individual lives. There's a lot of ways to answer that question. We try to help out with that by on the back of this bulletin that you get every week, there's a list of different ways you can jump in to learn more about faith, to learn more about Jesus here at Chapel Street. And if you ever have questions about those, you can come see me, see Eric, see any of those around you because we would love to help you figure out what it means to follow Jesus in your own life. But today what I want to do is I want to remind you of who Jesus is and what he says to you. And then I want to just reflect for 30 seconds together on this statement of Jesus. And that our hearts would rest in it and know that following Jesus in our own lives starts with seeing what he has said to us. Not thinking about what we need to do, but thinking about what he has done for us. That's where it starts. So let me read these words. We're going to take 30 seconds to reflect on them. And then I'm just going to lead us in praying for a few things in our church family. Let's pray together. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just take a few moments to reflect on those words. And let God speak those to you. Father, we gather in this place this morning because you said those words. Because you have asked for us to come to you. To trust you. Father, we gather to sing. We gather to hear from your word. We gather to pray because we want to learn to come to you. We want to learn to take your yoke. To listen to you. To find rest for our souls in your words. God, find those places in our heart where we are not coming to you, where we are busying ourselves with other things, and help us to stand still for a moment and change direction. Help us to come to you, wherever that may be. We confess, Lord, that we are weary, we are heavy laden, there is so much, even as Eric shared a moment ago, so many things going on in our midst, Lord, that are overwhelming. Lord, we pray for Mike and Lee and the Bosch family, and especially for Lee's brother, Buddy. God, that you would have grace on him as he struggles, as he's currently uh, sick and dealing with his own uh, disease. Lord Jesus, we ask for mercy on his life. Lord, that he would know you. He would know your great love for him. And that the power of your spirit would heal him. Lord, we also think of Betty Jo, a beloved part of our church family here. Lord, who is in her last days. But I thank you for the great grace that is on her life, Lord, that she knows you and has so much joy in you. 
And I thank you that she embodies the words, death has lost its sting. Because even in our final days, Lord, she is unafraid because of the love that you've given to her. Lord, I pray that you would be with her and bring great peace to her and rest to her and joy to her even in these last days. And Lord, especially for Heather and Beverly and Rich and the others around her, Lord Jesus. Christina, Lord, we just ask for your grace. Grace to fall on them, Lord Jesus, to hold them together and be with them, Lord, as they grieve and as they prepare. Thank you for your love, Lord. We come to you today because we are heavy laden and weary and we want your rest. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin uh, today by showing you my brain. Well, not the gray, wrinkly stuff inside my skull, but, but this little thing right here, uh, my notebook. Now, some people, many people now, including my wife, have gone completely digital with their calendars and their day planners and stuff like that, but I'm a little, I'm a little old school. I don't trust all that technology stuff, so I have my notebook. I have my hard copy, and I have everything in here. I have, for example... I draw these myself, by the way. I have one page every month of the year with little boxes for every single day of the month, just big enough to write in all my appointments and things I need to do that day. Uh, And then I have five pages uh, between each month, uh, four for my list for the weeks of the month, four weeks, and then a blank page for all my sort of random notes. But this is where I keep my life. Um, This is my brain. And the most important feature of my little notebook here and I carry it with me everywhere I go, is the blank pages on which I make my weekly to-do list. I'm a list maker. Anybody here do that? Anybody a list list maker? Well, then you're you're my people because I'm a a list maker. Um, I believe list making is actually the key to a happy and productive life. Um, Every Sunday evening or Monday morning, I make my list for that week, and I write down everything that I can think of that I need to do that week. Uh, And then when I do one of those things, I do what? Cross it off, right? And those of you who are list makers know how rewarding that is to cross off things on your list. And if I do something that's not on my list, I go back and write it on my list, right? So then you get credit for it when you cross it off. I know it's a little weird, but that's what I do. Um, And at the very top of my list every week, and it's been this way for for 30 years or so, is write sermon, prepare sermon. But over the years, I've broken that down into a series of steps that roughly correlate with the days of the week. Let me just take you through it. This may be a little bit boring, but this, this is what I do every week. Monday, it's, uh, I create my outline, just a rough outline. Tuesday, what I call a detailed outline. On Wednesday, I add some illustrations and maybe images that fit into that outline. On Thursday, I write my rough draft. Then on Friday, I write my final draft. On Saturday, I review it all and tweak any parts that need to be tweaked. And then at some point on Sunday, uh, excuse me, on Saturday, I get to the point where I say to myself, okay, that's, that's good, or that's good enough, or at least that's, you know, a little above average maybe, and I'm kind of done. And then on Sunday, I'm able to deliver final product, and then I rest. And maybe you can see where I'm going with this to-do list. We're in a series right now called The Gospel in Genesis, and we're studying the biblical account of creation Um, of all things, the origin of all things, an account that reads very much like the to-do list 
of God. That's where we are studying. Part one, you remember a couple weeks ago, John Dixon led us through an overview of Genesis 1 through 3, pointing out that Genesis is unique among all the ancient pagan mythologies of creation in the world. It's a sophisticated piece of literature, and in it we find a profound understanding for our for, for life itself. That's how he, he began. Last week we looked at the first three days of creation. How day one we saw the creation of light and darkness. And day two, the creation of the seas. Day three, creation of dry land. We saw that the creator is eternal. The creator is, re- is intentional. And the creator is relational. And we also saw that the first three days of creation, whether they were 24-hour days or days as in ages of time beyond our comprehension, that God created, formed the heavens and the earth. In other words, he kind of built the house. And then today we're going to see that God fills the heavens and the earth. God fills the house he's built with life. So again, our two lenses in this study of Genesis are what is the good news of Genesis? Where do we see the gospel in Genesis? And secondly, we are not primarily asking the when and how questions what I would call the questions of science, although we are going to acknowledge some of those questions today, we are primarily looking at the, how, the who and the why questions. Andrew Briggs, professor of nanomaterials at Oxford, and a believer, says what scientists are doing is finding out how God makes the world work, and it's great fun. I love that quote. Again, we are primarily looking at the who and the why questions, the questions of faith. So with those things in mind, let's continue our study of the to-do list of God. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now pause there. Remember on the first day, God created light and darkness. Here on the fourth day, he fills the light and the darkness with heavenly bodies. Verse 20, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let the birds, let birds fly above the earth and across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Again, notice that on the second day here, uh, back in the second day, God has separated the waters from the above, the sky, from the waters below. And here on day five, God fills the sky and fills the waters with living creatures. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. 
Now, this is the first part of the sixth day. And again, it corresponds with back with day three that we looked at last week uh, when God separated the dry lands from the seas and caused vegetation to grow. And here on day six, he fills the dry land with life that he creates. So that's where we begin today. And I want you to notice, um, I'm sure you noticed several of the phrases that I highlighted as you looked at the screen. I put them in a different color. And there were three phases, phrases that were repeated multiple times in the short passage you looked at today and are repeated even more times throughout the first chapter of Genesis. Let me go over them with you. The first phrase was, and God said, let there be. Three times in these verses and seven times overall in Genesis chapter 1. The second phrase you noticed was according to their kind. Five times in these verses and ten times overall in Genesis chapter 1. The last phrase was God saw that it was good. Three times in the verses we read today and seven times overall in chapter 1. And the last time, which we have not gotten to yet, he says it is very good, but that's uh, for next week. So, what do we see about God the Creator? What do we learn about Him and His creation? And why is it good news? Okay, the first thing I'm going to talk about today is the authority of the Creator. That's the first thing we see, the authority of the Creator. Now, most of you know I spent a good deal of my early life uh, around sports. Uh, Years ago, I served as an assistant basketball coach at Taylor University. And my first year there... Um, at Taylor, there was a brand new coach that came in to coach the basketball team. So uh, no one really knew what to expect. And so the very first day of practice, um, the, the guys were, kinda, it, were in the gym and they had their practice uniforms on. And they were sort of nervously stretching, getting ready for the first practice when the new coach walked in. He walked in the gym, he looked around at all the guys, and then he blew his whistle. I think it woke somebody up. And then he said, Tuck in your shirts. And the combination of the whistle and the tone of his voice, those shirts almost tucked themselves in. It was was so fast, they were just getting ready for practice. But the coach carried authority, and that's kind of like what we see here. Verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, and he also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. So Genesis is telling us that God creates by the authority of his word. Let there be, and it was so. God commands there to be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And then he makes two great lights, Genesis says. The greater light to govern the day. What's the greater light to govern the day? The sun, obviously. The lesser light to govern the night. And what's that? You find yourself asking the question, why doesn't the author just say sun and moon? Why does he say greater light and lesser light? Well, scholars believe that's because the ancient pagan pagan cultures that surrounded Israel at that time, like Babylon or Sumeria or Egypt, worshipped the sun and the moon as gods, small g. So the author wants to be very clear here that the sun and the moon are just things that the Creator made. 
And they serve by the authority of his word. Therefore, they are not to be worshipped. They are not to be feared. They are just things the Creator has made, and they serve at the authority of his word. Now, from our perspective, here in our modern world, we don't really bat an eye at this, right? We, we, since fourth grade, we have a basic understanding of the solar system, how it works, how the earth revolves around the sun, spinning on its axis to produce what we call day and night, how the path of the earth and the tilt of its axis uh, creates what we call seasons and the role of the moon in governing the tides. You know, we know all that, but not so the first people who read this. Not so the ancient Israelites who had no idea of any of that. So this would be very good news to them that they need not see the sun and the moon and the stars as deities to be feared and placated by sacrifices, but rather as gifts from the Creator God who made all of them, who made the sun and the moon to give them days and seasons and years. Genesis is simply saying that God has so arranged the earth and the sun, and the moon in a way so as to create the exact conditions, including temperature, sunlight, water system, atmosphere, growing seasons that make life possible. And then we see this. He made the stars. He also made the stars. In Hebrew, that's only three words. He also made the stars. I want you to consider just for a moment the enormity of that small sentence. He also made the stars. Have you ever walked outside at night or early in the morning, gazed up at the sky and wondered, how many are there? Have you ever wondered, how, how far are they away? Let me, let me go through some things with you here. This is the Milky Way, visible from our planet on a really clear night. Uh, this is the galaxy our solar system is in. In other words, this is our neighborhood in the universe. Now try to wrap your mind around this. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second, which means light travels 11 million miles in a minute. That's why the sun's light takes about eight minutes to get here. By the time you see the sun uh, come up in the morning, it's already been there for eight minutes, okay? Uh, so a, a light, uh, and then, therefore it travels 5.9 trillion miles in a year. That's one light year. One light year is 5.9 trillion miles. And the Milky Way, our neighborhood, is 100,000 light years across. Is your mind with me so far? Okay. That's just the block we live in. It contains over 200 billion stars. There are over 100 billion galaxies like the Milky Way in the known universe. Now, if that doesn't turn your brain to complete mush, uh, consider this. In the book of Job, which is uh, the oldest book in our Bible, meaning it, it, it actually, the writing of it predates uh, Genesis even, uh, when Job questions God about his suffering, and when God finally speaks, in chapter 38, thundering out of a storm, the Bible says, listen to what he says, Job 38. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Then verse 31. Watch this and pay attention. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? 
Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? So, so what's this about? What's God talking about here? An author and Christian apologist named J. Warner Wallace points out that there are three constellations of stars mentioned in this ancient text. Constellations still visible to us today. The Pleiades, often called the Seven Sisters, Orion the Hunter, and then one called the Bear. God says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? This is what the Pleiades looked like. Now, the Pleiades is actually a cluster of stars uh, bound together by a power, powerful mutual gravitational attraction. God says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Because I have. All right? Next, God says, can you loosen Orion's belt? I take walks early in the morning while it's still dark, and I can see Orion's belt every, sun, every morning if, if the sky is clear. You probably can see it too. You recognize Orion. Orion is the... Th the the three stars in a row there are his belt. And then if you want to look at the, the diagram of what Orion the Hunter looks like, it looks like this. The three stars are his belt, and that's how they imagine Orion the Hunter. Okay? Uh, it's, it's three stars lined up, which is actually two stars and a, and a cluster of stars. But we now know through the study of, of astrophysics and astronomy that those three stars of Orion's belt are not bound gravitationally like those are in the Pleiades. All right? You following? Rather, the stars in Orion's belt are actually heading in different directions. It'll take many, many, many years, millions of years, but they are eventually, astronomers now know, going to separate. And that constellation will not look like that. The belt is loosening. God says, can you loosen Orion's belt? Because I have. Finally, he says, can you lead the bear out with his cubs? What's that about? Wallace suggests that the bear is the giant star Arcturus that's hurtling through the universe at 257 miles per second and dragging by its gravitational force 52 stars along in its wake. God challenges Job, can you lead the bear out with its cubs? Can you control this massive star? That, because I can and I have. Now here's the thing. So in this ancient text, written at a time when the first readers would have no idea about what God was talking about. These are things that we, some 4,000 years later, through the study of science, can understand. Now, these few ancient verses by themselves ought to make any skeptic who wonders about the power and truth of God's Word want to read the Bible a little more closely because God is telling us something about Himself. Now, one more thing about stars. Did you know that many of the elements needed for organic life on Earth, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, are generated by collapsing and exploding supernova stars through, uh, through millions of years? Again, astrophysicists will study how and when stars explode. They cannot tell us why and who created them. Genesis says simply, he also made the stars, almost like an afterthought. Think of the enormity of those words. And he made them by the authority of his word. The design of the creator is the second thing. So we see the authority of the creator, and we see the design of the creator. Uh, when one of our boys was young, <clears throat> he was fascinated with uh, whales. He collected whale toys and whale books, and by the time he was like four, he could recite 
over a dozen names of whales individually, you know, narwhals and sperm whales and blue whales and humpback whales. And, but his favorite was killer whale. And this is actually one of his toys from 25 years ago, a little killer whale. I mean, he watched Free Willy like a gazillion times. Um, so we imagine his excitement. We finally decided to take a family vacation to SeaWorld. Uh, it happened to be SeaWorld in Cleveland at that time. I think it's closed now. And he was going to get to see the real Shamu, you know, the performing killer whale. They don't perform anymore either, which is probably a good thing. But we got to the park, and they had this holding tank uh, right as you walked into the park where, sh- where, the kill- where the Shamu would sort of rest up between performances. And he was in this holding tank, but the, the, the wall was about that high, so I had to pick my, pick my little son up, who was so excited, who loved whales. I picked him up to look down into the tank to see the real, a real killer whale. And all he had was this to go on. I picked him up, he looked in, and he, his eyes got big, and he whispered into my ear, Daddy. It's really big, he said. <laughs> it was so cute, but it was true. It was so big. Verse 20. And God said, are you getting tired of that yet? Because I'm not. I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth and across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Day five, God fills the seas and the skies with life. Now, God's command and his design moves from the universe to biological life. Now, we see two significant things here. First, that phrase, according to its kind. As I mentioned earlier, this phrase is repeated ten times in Genesis chapter 1 alone, beginning with plant life and moving now on to animal life. So we should conclude that this phrase is important, that it matters to God. So what does according to their kind mean? Now simply put, it means that God has so designed biological life to reproduce itself in a consistent, predictable, and recognizable way. So... With regard to plant life, it means that apple trees always produce apples and not oranges. With regard to animal life, it means that when dogs mate, they produce dogs, not sheep. That's just what it means, according to their kind. Now, this is where it's a little tempting to get into a discussion of what we all know as the theory of evolution. Now, I'm not really going to do that uh, today, although I'm going to dive a little bit into it. First of all, because it's a how question, it's a question of science, and this is, isn't the time and place to drill down deeply into uh, the science of it all. Secondly, because I've read a lot about it, but I'm not a scientist, so I'm not really qualified to get into that much detail. But there are a few things I think we can say and must say. Remember, there are two explanations, only two explanations, when it comes to the origin of life. The Genesis answer, God created all that is, including life itself, from nothing, and the non-Genesis answer, which is nature spontaneously created itself. Only two possibilities. John Lennox, who's professor of emeritus of mathematics at Oxford and a leading Christian thinker, says it this way. He says, while it's obvious that evolution uh, can indeed explain some things, for example, he says, look around the room. You'll notice that we all don't look the same. We are all different shapes and sizes. When I was in college, I had a basketball teammate who was seven feet two inches tall. Okay? We're all different. Uh, so 
there's obviously some kind of flexibility and adaptation in the kinds God created. There are big dogs, little dogs, white dogs, black dogs, spotted dogs, but they're all dogs, right? But evolution is not and can never be the explanation of the origin of life. And that's because evolution, as a theory, needs life to already exist to have any influence on it. You follow? It doesn't explain the origin of life. It never can explain the origin of life. And with regard to whether these small adaptations within a kind, whether they lead to or prove that one kind can become another kind through natural selection and mutation over great lengths of time, and whether that explains everything, uh, is a long way from being accepted by the, by, the, by the total scientific community. Here are just a few problems with evolution that are pointed out by scientists themselves, okay? And I can barely understand these things. Let me just tick through a couple things. First, unguided chemical processes cannot explain the origin of the genetic code. Second, random mutations cannot generate the genetic information required for irreducibly complex structures. Abrupt appearance of species in the fossil record does not support Darwinian evolution. And there's many more I could go through. But in 2019, over 1,000 PhD scientists from across the world signed a document that reads, we are skeptical of the claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence of the Darwinian theory is encouraged. Now, having said all that, remember, our lens is not how, but who and why. Genesis is simply saying that God has so designed biological life that when two zebras mate, they produce a zebra, not a giraffe. And this predictability speaks to the design and the order of the creator and all that he creates. Andrew Briggs again says, science actually requires faith. Science proceeds on the, on the supposition that nature is uniform and intelligible when we investigate the world, we do not assume it to be a random, screen, uh, random s uh, scratchings on a scrap of paper. It's as if nature is the result of an intelligent act. Second thing we see here is God's blessing. Verse 22 says, God blessed them. This is the very first blessing of God in the entire Bible. The birds of the air and, and the creatures of the sea. And God blessed them. His blessing says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. God's blessing is the ability to join him in creating life by reproducing in great numbers and fill the world that he created. And here's a spoiler alert. We're going to see this blessing repeated next week as we get to the creation of human beings. So that's the second thing, the design of the creator. The third thing we see here today is the goodness of the creator. Move on to day six, verse 24. And God said, let the, let the land, just this so much fun. And let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground all together now according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Remember back on day three, God created dry land and vegetation. Here on the first part of day six, he fills the dry land with biological life. And we see three kinds of creatures mentioned specifically. Livestock, these are animals that can be domesticated or herded, like sheep, goats, cattle, camels, horses, etc. Again, according to their kind. We see creatures that move along the ground, literally creeping things. Maybe not your favorite kind of animal, but... 
These are rodents, reptiles, insects, etc., also according to their kinds. And then wild animals. These are undomesticated animals according to their kinds. Now, if you're thinking along with me and paying attention, at least some of you ought to be asking the question right now, what about the dinosaurs? Right? Anybody? Was that in your mind? What about the dinosaurs? Where do they fit in? Well, I think they're right here. The wild, wild animals, the undomesticated animals. Now, there are two main views when it comes to dinosaurs, right? Some think dinosaurs and humans existed at the same time in the history of all things. Others think God created dinosaurs millions of years before he created human beings. The question is, then, why would God create such magnificent creatures if we were never going to in, in, interface with them and inhabit them at the same time in the earth? Why would God even do that? A scientist named Hugh Ross gives us a scientific answer. He says, The existence of huge populations of dinosaurs during past eras, when much of the Earth's landmass was covered by shallow seas, significantly contributed to the Earth's present store of biodeposits, including limestone, marble, coal, oil, and natural gas. Scientific answer. Okay. My answer, a little less scientific, is maybe just for fun. I think God knew that someday human beings made in his image, spoiler alert, that's next week, human beings made in his image would get curious about where we came from because we have minds and brains and we'd start digging around in the earth trying to look for, for clues and someone would find the thigh bone of a T-Rex and go, whoa, who made this? So I think maybe God made them for fun. Here's the point. And God saw that it was and God saw that it was good. God pronounces his creation good. That little Hebrew word is tov. Three, three letters, tov. And it means something much deeper and much more powerful than how we often use the word good. You know, we say that was a good game, or that was a really good soup, or that, that was a pretty good sermon, whatever. No, this goodness is in its purest form. Goodness as it proceeds from the mind and heart of God himself. Genesis is saying that the creation is not God. We are not to worship and venerate created things, but it is good. And why does that matter? Well, because the creator is good. The creator God is eternal, intentional, and relational. He creates by the authority of his word. His design and order makes all of creation good. And the goodness of creation bears witness to the goodness of the creator. And the good creator wants us, his creation, to know his goodness. The choir anthem today and, uh, was from this verse, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. And what the creation reveals, what the creation sings about, what the creation speaks of is a good creator who created a good world, an ordered world, a blessed world for us to enjoy, for us to care for, and a world in which we can know him. Because the creator God wants good for us. And that's good news. So here we are. Maybe you find yourself crying out with King David. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind 
that you are mindful of them. Human beings, that you care for them. Who am I in the face of the vastness of the universe that you would care for me? Maybe your heart cries that out today. Join the club. Dr. Francis Collins, who's the former director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, writes, when you look at the perspective, look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as though it knew we were coming. Spoiler alert, that's next week. So stay with us, read ahead in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the beauty and power, for the simplicity and complexity of what we are studying in Genesis. And Lord, we confess that we struggle to grasp the fullness, the vastness, the mysteries of your eternal and creative power. So help us by your Spirit to engage your word, not just with our minds, but also with our hearts. Help us to see your truth, not just through the lens of science and questions, but also the lens of faith and trust. And help us to see that you have created all that is to share your goodness with us. And that's good news. We pray these things in your name. Amen.